Hello, homies. So those of you that have been listening to this podcast for a while or are clients of mine or who know me know that I am passionate about my ongoing continuing professional development. Now, about a year ago, I did this great course on repertorization through the website Naturopathic CE, and the lecturer was Dr. Matt Zorn. So I was completely blown away by this course. It was so helpful. So when I started this podcast, I knew I had to get him on the show. Now, I'm always trying to educate the general public on the types of questions and the types of information that is really helpful for us in the consultation process so that we can help you to help us so you can achieve the best results at the end of the day. And who better to get on than Dr. Matt Zorn? to get into the nitty-gritty of the bits of information that's going to be really helpful for us in the homeopathic process. So enjoy this episode, and I hope that when you next go to see your homeopath, it will make you think of some bits of information that you might be able to give them that maybe you haven't previously, and who knows, that might be the missing piece to the puzzle. Enjoy. Welcome to the Homeopathy Hangout Podcast, where we discuss all things homeopathy from around the world. And now your host, Eugenie Kruger. Hello, homies, and thank you for joining us today as we get to hang out with Dr. Matthew Zorn. Welcome, Matt. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Well, I'm super excited to have you on because I have done a few of your courses and I might have mentioned to you that you know you're doing a great course when one minute Mm. and 40 seconds into the course you learn something that after 10 years of practice you never knew so (laughs) I just think you're an absolute (laughs) legend and a king of the homeopathic repertory along with Luke Norland I just put you two up there on pedestals when it comes to repertorization which is such a powerful tool that us as homeopaths have but I think repertorization will be a whole other podcast in itself so I will leave that one for another day but maybe we can start off Matthew with you telling us how you discovered homeopathy Sure. Uh, Well, the way I discovered homeopathy was I was in uh, the program that I was in back in 98 to 2002, and I had plantar warts that I hadn't been able to get rid of in seven years. My brother also had plantar warts, and so I went to a homeopath that had just graduated. She took a look at them. She gave me a little blue tube. It cost me $5. She said, take three pellets per day. And by day four, they were gone. And it just completely blew me away because my brother had taken uh, a different route, the allopathic route. He went to a podiatrist. It cost $800 out of pocket. They used a laser. They were burning the, the warts out of his feet with the laser. He was changing bloody gauze. He was in pain. So I said, wow, $5, <laughs> painless, gone in four days. Whereas he had them, couldn't get rid of them. And Uh, He just went through all this pain and it cost so much money. So that really kind of opened my eyes to what homeopathy is. And then the other thing is I've always been kind of a maverick. I've always kind of thought outside the box. I've always challenged orthodoxy. So when I started reading up on homeopathy, it just kind of resonated with me. So that was my initial experience with it. Mm -hmm. Amazing. And what made you decide to become a homeopathic practitioner and to practice it yourself? Well, in the program I was going through, they offered naturopathic medicine, homeopathy, and Chinese medicine. And I figured I wanted to do something that was energetically based because I didn't want to, you know, if you're a practitioner and you're practicing allopathically, you're essentially going to war every day. You're going uh, a battle of disease, you know, battle of syndrome. To me, uh, going to war 
and health and peace, they're opposites. You can't be at peace and at war at the same time. So, you know, if you've got an autoimmune disease, you can say that that autoimmune disease is an entity of in and of itself and that you have to go to war against it, but then you'll never be at peace. You'll never truly find health. So I found that the, the two were Chinese medicine and uh, homeopathy that were energetically based where the disease wasn't something to be fought, but it was the, the, the result of an imbalance. And then if you really understood the person and you really understood the rules that govern uh, health and disease, that you could rectify the disease or the imbalance in the person without actually going to war. And so that's why I chose homeopathy. Because mm -hmm. I knew I couldn't master both of them because they're both, <laughs> you know, sealed in and of themselves. So I figured, let me go with homeopathy. Mm -hmm. So what would you say is, is true health or what is your definition of health? Health, well, I'm going to borrow from James Tyler Kent and in his book, The Philosophy of Homeopathy. Uh, or Kent's lectures on philosophy of homeopathy, he talks about health as being freedom. And he says that health is, is freedom physically, uh, mentally, emotionally, and uh, spiritually. I'm paraphrasing. Mm -hmm. But essentially, there's four, four different realms or layers. And the individual needs to feel a sense of freedom, freedom from uh, signs and symptoms of disease or on those four different levels. So that's a, a general definition of what health is. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Maybe you can tell us a little bit because this podcast is obviously aimed at the general public. And we had a quick mm -hmm. little chat beforehand and I was telling you like some of my frustration is when we're getting somebody who is completely new to homeopathy, who comes yeah. and sees us for a consultation, they really have mm -hmm. no idea what to expect because homeopathy is such a completely different paradigm to mainstream mm -hmm. medicine, which is usually where most people come from. So part of my mission is to try and help the general public to understand what sort of mm -hmm. things we as homeopaths need to know to be able to help them the most. Now, I actually have now in my terms of service, Clients have mm -hmm. to complete my free online course before they come for treatment to see me, just so that they have the basics of it, because it's no use spending half your consult trying to explain to them what homeopathy is and what they need to know when you could be spending their time really getting to help them. So I'm wondering, Matt, do you mind doing a deep dive for us into what exactly a client needs to know before they come to see us of what sort of information is really helpful for us to help them the most? Okay. So, in essence, uh, what people should know when they choose to go see a homeopath is that, well, number one, they should just be open. If, if you have any preconceived notions, those might actually get in the way. Mm -hmm. So, it's interesting because Kent said in his book on the lesser writings, he was talking about, the, I think the title of it was The Making of a Man or something like that. And he talked about how the homeopath gives a remedy the remedy cures the patient. The patient comes back and tells the homeopath that they're better. And he said, then the homeopath sheds a tear and thanks God, right? And so what that means is that it's, the homeopath isn't really responsible for the healing of the patient, that the homeopath is part of this much bigger circle. And the patient's also part of that circle. Like when you're not well, you have to try to realize it's hard sometimes. I understand when people are depressed or, you know, they're riddled with anger or depression, but you are absolutely connected to everything in this universe. You know, you are a part and parcel of it. And one of the reasons that we suffer is because we don't realize how connected we are to the whole that, you know, we, we are an integral part of it. 
you know, everything, the universe, the, all of the potential of the universe is within us. Mm-hmm. So it would be helpful for the patient to understand when they go to see a homeopath, just to stay open. You know, there's a, le- like a level of surrender. There's a, as, as practitioners, there's a level of surrender that we have to uh, reach or strive towards because we're not the doers. We apply ourselves to every patient the same, and some people get better and some people don't, right? So what's the difference between the two? The difference is they're just not ready to heal yet. It's not, so it's not in our hands as practitioners. We do the best we can. We apply ourselves uh, we use our training, we use everything that, that we've been exposed to, but it's really up to a higher power when, when somebody is going to heal. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of a, a philosophical point to your mm-hmm. question. Practically, they, uh, they should just realize that when they go to see a homeopath, I ask questions that they may not even think has anything to do with their headache <laughs> or that has nothing to do with you know, their PMS. Yeah. or whatever and and just just be open to the process i think that would be the most meaningful thing is when you go into something with intention and you're open to any any possibility and then that's when the magic happens mm-hmm. so that's what i would say to that absolutely now what types of questions would you ask a, a client in the clinic like what sort of things are helpful for you to know and i guess it depends on the okay. case that's coming in we have jargon that we use like modalities mm-hmm. and concomitants and all that sort of things but how would you translate that into layman's terms as to how these things are helpful sure. For us? sure sure so um w- you want to start i like to start with open-ended questions right and the open-ended question is something that's not directed. It's just, you know, something as simple as, so how can I help you today? Or um, so what, you know, what's your chief complaint today? And I have a template that I follow, whether it's an acute or a chronic condition, because one of the things that I personally try to avoid is too much human story. Uh, human story is something that you can't really prescribe on because it's too general for the human experience. And so what I like to do is I like to understand, like get an overview of what is the chief complaint or chief complaints. So if somebody says, as an example, well, I get chronic headaches, I've got asthma and I get menstrual symptoms Mm -hmm. or PMS, Mm -hmm. right? So, and I'll say, okay, is there anything else besides that? And they've given me those three things and say, no, there's nothing else. Then I want to go into each one of those into in depth as far as homeopathy goes. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, we do a a review of systems, skin, musculoskeletal, genital urinary. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, we get into sleep and then sleep positions. And then we look at things. Well, what are they sensitive to? So we look at diet and then we look at sensitivity to weather and things like that. So we do cover everything. But I, when I take a case, I want to make sure that I stick to the chief complaints, the things that the individual, that person's consciousness, it's bothering their awareness. So they're so aware of it, they're coming to see you for help. And and the remedy really needs to address the chief complaint, the the suffering of the chief complaint. Because if it doesn't, and this is something that I went through when I was going through training where, you know, we're all brand new students. We are being overseen by by a licensed professional. Mm -hmm. We give a remedy and they come back and their chief complaint isn't any better. And, but their dreams have changed a bit. And then we go into our conference room and we say, well, is the remedy working? And then somebody says, well, I think it's working because their sleep is a little bit better, but the chief complaint hasn't changed and it's been mm-hmm. three or four weeks. So I like to make sure that in follow-ups that we're looking at 
the chief complaint in percentages mm-hmm. is are the headaches reducing in uh, frequency, mm-hmm. in duration, and in intensity? Or you know what you could apply that to headaches, you could apply that to asthma attacks, you could apply that mm-hmm. to IBS symptoms. Mm-hmm. So I got off a little bit uh, on topic. People should just be aware when they go to a homeopath to s- stay open to mm-hmm. any possibility, mm-hmm. be open to the process, mm-hmm. and then be prepared to be asked strange or odd questions. That's just how we are. That's how we operate as homeopaths. Mm-hmm. So, so, so do, do you want to get into modalities and components yeah, now? Absolutely. Let's okay. do that. Okay. So some of the things that we look for are the uniqueness. What makes this person in front of me unique compared to the other 10 people that also come in with, uh, as example, with headaches, right? Headaches are very, very common. So we're, as homeopaths, we're striving to find what makes you unique, right? Because not everybody that has a headache experiences the headache in the same way. For some people, they get headaches when they strain their eyes too long, right? So we can go into the repertory and look at their head pain from exertion of the eyes. It'll give us about 50 remedies. So that'll kind of get us into the ballpark. Um, so that's really what we're doing. When, when we're asking questions, we're trying to discern and, and, and sift out what is unique to you, which is going to indicate the remedy, and what's unique to the state that you're in that is causing the headaches that you're experiencing. And then what do we not really pay attention to because it's too general? I've found with headaches, typically most people get headaches. They're across the forehead or in the temples, maybe in the parietal area. I'd say 60 to 70%. So location doesn't really help all that much. Mm -hmm. So there's a good book. It's It's a short book that I recommend to all students of homeopathy. It's Eugene Nash's How to Take the Case and Find the Similimum. It's You can find it online for free. It's a very small book. I think it's about 45 to 48 pages. And in it, Dr. Nash lays out how to take the case. And it's, it's, just a, it's a good, strong foundational template that if you apply it to acutes and, and chronic cases, it gives you a, a strong foothold, a good foundation to start building your understanding of homeopathy. And in it, he goes over things like when excite, what is an exciting cause? Mm-hmm. Right? So an exciting cause is something that triggers symptoms or it puts the person into the state that they're now in that perpetuates chronic headaches or it perpetuates mm-hmm. PMS. An exciting cause could be anything from a divorce in childhood. It could be from a, a, a loss of money in a business failure, a business venture where the business, mm-hmm. you know, uh, goes bankrupt and the person is never well since that point. Mm-hmm. So it's really a divergence in the person's life. What's not an exciting cause is if somebody, as an example, has a, a sibling or a family member pass away and they go through the grieving process, but then they come back to their, their general state. About mm-hmm. it, it didn't really shift where their vital force is, right? Because we can have stresses that we go through in life that push us off kilter. We go through a process of where we process the stress. It doesn't matter what it is. And we, if our vitality is strong, we find our way back to our center point. That doesn't need treatment. What needs treatment is when the exciting cause, as an example, uh, a death of a loved one, pushes the person into a state where they're never able to recover back to that mm-hmm. center point. Mm-hmm. So now they're in a, the, the exciting cause was so intense that it pushed their vitality or their spiritual energy off the course to a point where they can't recover. That would require homeopathic treatment. So an exciting cause can be that. It can be a change in weather. It could be... Right. It, the, 
Fright. Yeah. Fright. Shock, it could be car accident. Yeah. Yep. Car accidents. It could be anger. It could be, uh, yeah, something there. There's a rubric, um, anxiety after a fright under the mind chapter. Mm-hmm. And there's about 12, 15, I think there's two, two different rubrics that represent that mm-hmm. or fear after a fright. Mm-hmm. Opium is the main one, mm-hmm. but Nat Mears in there and Ignatius mm-hmm. in there. So, um, definitely things like that could be, um, exciting causes. There's an exciting cause I see in my clinic quite often because I have a lot of little children and that's uh, the birth of a sibling. And oh, you, know, yeah. you can have a child that's, you know, one sort of temperament and a sibling is born and that just, they never quite recover after that. There's just this new layer that's added there and you can see that child's just really struggling. So even something like that could be an exciting cause Absolutely. as well. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So we don't want to, we don't want to limit what an exciting cause is mm-hmm. in, in general, the definition is something that the person has a sensitivity to. So when they experience it, it pushes their vitality in a way where they cannot recover. So that could be pretty much almost anything depending on a person's sensitivity. The other thing that we look for, and these are really helpful, are modalities. And modalities are things that make symptoms better or make symptoms worse, right? So we have patients that say, uh, anytime the weather changes, I get a headache. So uh, the change in weather could be a, a modality or su- they can't go out in sunny weather because it causes a headache or consuming milk. Milk, that's an aggravating factor. That's something that would make their stomach pain worse or it causes diarrhea. So anything that makes symptoms better or worse or you know brings on symptoms from the state that they're in would be a modality. The ones we ignore are medications, right? Somebody Mm -hmm. says, oh, you know, I get PMS symptoms. I take um, some medication and it relieves my symptoms. Mm -hmm. That for a homeopath, that's completely um, useless as far as information that we're trying to gather because the medication isn't in the realm of the natural world. It's not, Mm -hmm. you know, we're looking for things in the person's environment. Modalities could be things like um, posture, right? Mm -hmm. When I get a headache, I need to lie down. Because uh, if I if I sit up or I'm upright, the headache gets worse and worse and worse. Mm-hmm. Eating could be a, modal, a modality, right? I get if I I think lycopodium is the main remedy under head pain from fasting. If if hunger isn't appeased immediately, it's one of I, I think five or six remedies in that rubric. So that's that's something else we look for. Is anything that makes your symptoms better? Or makes your symptoms worse. We have a lot of our clients okay. who have sinus issues uh, or headaches that come on with the change of weather. If there are certain weather patterns that can really bring on these mm-hmm. symptoms as well, headaches or sinus pain or whatever else. Sure. Yeah, no, absolutely. And then the other thing I want to kind of touch on. So there's, there's sensation, you know, what does it feel like? Sensation is helpful, but it has to be kind of unique. That's what I found over the years. Location is also can be quite helpful, especially if it's unique. There's some remedies like the remedy Murex. It has a location as far as ailments. The ailments go crosswise. So the, as an example, if, if the patient says, you know, it's a right around my right uh, ovary and then the pain shoots and extends over towards my left chest. Mm-hmm. That's, that's a very unique s- location or symptom for the remedy Murex. Mm-hmm. So sensation, location, modalities, what makes symptoms better, what makes them worse, the exciting cause, what them, put them into that remedy state in the first place. And then the last thing, which can be very helpful, are um, concomitant symptoms. And a concomitant symptom are things that happen with or things that happen beforehand. So I had years ago, I had a patient, I was going back and forth between two or three remedies. 
And she said, when I was nursing my child, every time I nursed my child, uh, I would get pain in my teeth. So you can go under teeth pain while um, uh, nursing the, the, the child. And there's one remedy in there. It's China. And then you think about it. And China has uh, ailments from loss of fluid. So while the mother's feeding, she's giving out breast milk, which is a, a bodily fluid. And so that's why that makes sense that it was there. So concomitant symptoms can be, you know, if they have a headache and then uh, during their headache, their eyes start to just water, right? Lacrimation during head pain. Uh, or it can be, uh, you know, preceding it. And that mirror is very well known for getting numbness around the lips or the face before their migraines, or it can be during the migraines. Uh, any visual disturbances. One that I find quite useful in acutes, especially if there's fevers, are when the fever happens, if there's a coryza or, you know, a clear runny discharge from the nose uh, with the fever. Mm -hmm. You know, I think uh, what's the remedy is, uh, I think tuberculinum has aching in the thighs during fever. Wow. So anything that happens during another symptom, so they're, they're, the, mm -hmm. the, the two symptoms are related, mm -hmm. whether this happens first and then the next symptom happen, uh, happens directly after mm -hmm. it while they happen uh, at the same time, mm -hmm. those are extremely useful in, in practice. So there's a there's a really good one that your buddy Luke actually had a while ago. I think it was the start of this year. He, he said uh, pain in the distal parts when coughing. So he was coughing, but he had pain in different parts of the body. And that's, uh, I think it was capsicum, which was quite uh -huh. an interesting yeah. remedy. And I heard one of the best symptoms. I mean, I, people never cease to amaze me, but I had such a goodie this week. A client said uh -huh. she gets burning pain on the tip of her nose with her period. And there was one remedy in there, carbo animalis. Carb carbo animalis. Yep. Yeah. I, that remedy. I thought that was very interesting. Car yeah. yeah. Well, that, that's, uh, yeah, I actually did a, whole, a presentation and I forget what it was on, but I went over carbo animalis and that remedy has a very, uh, has an affinity for the tip of the nose. Mm -hmm. So whether oh. it's, it's erupt, whether it's an icy coldness or a burning or pimples, any type of eruption on the tip of the nose, Carbo animalis is one of the remedies to consider. I did that's not know else. that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's something else to consider um, when you're studying homeopathy is to look at what which tissues does this remedy have an affinity for, right? And it's it's very well laid out in like in, in Bulger's synoptic key when he talks about a remedy. You know, he does the modalities and then he talks about the affinities that, the, mm -hmm. you know, these remedies have an affinity for nerve tissue or these remedies have an affinity for dermal tissue. These remedies have an affinity for mucosa. So that's also another, another good way to get the whole picture when you're uh, case taking. That's very exciting. Do you know what, Matt? As we were chatting, I suddenly yeah. had a thought. How about we play a little game and we do a mock case? So I'll be your client okay. with a headache. And okay. you can maybe just ask me the types of questions that you would ask a client if they were coming in with a headache. And I'll just make up some answers just to give our listeners a bit of an idea of what it might sure. sound like if you're having a consultation. Oh, okay. Yeah, sure. No problem. So, uh, so if, you, if I know that you're coming in for a headache, the first thing I would say is I would, I, I would do an open-ended question. So I'd say, tell me a little bit about your headache. Okay. So it started about a month ago. I'm going to be a closed client, so I'm not going to give you lots of information. You're going to have to work for it. <laughs> okay. Yeah, it started no about a month ago. Okay. okay. So then what I'd want to know is if it started a month ago, was anything going on around that time or just prior to that time, anything that was stressful to you or anything that had, you know, was, was bothering you at the time? Mm -hmm. um, I had an argument with a colleague around that time. Oh, 
Okay. So would, would you be okay with talking about that a bit? Cause yeah, that would sure. really help me. It would help me to be able to help you to really understand what was your experience with this argument and that colleague. So if you could talk to me about that, then that would really help me. Yeah, sure. Um, we just had a disagreement uh, on how something should be done. And I felt really sad. I, I wanted to have a cry, but I couldn't. And it was just a very confronting experience. And I don't like confrontation. I see. I see. So can you tell me a little bit about your experience with arguments and confrontation and when you get upset to that point? Do you have a pattern like that in life? If, you know, is that is that typical for you or is that very atypical what happened a month ago? It's very typical. I really don't like confrontation. Mm. So when that happens, then I tend to shy away from it. Okay. So the other question I would have for you, well, there's a couple more, but um, <laughs> so when you, when you get to that point uh, emotionally where you get that upset, do, do you get any physiologic reactions? Is a headache typical for you or do you get any uh, GI issues or do you, you know, mm-hmm. does anything else happen when you get emotionally worked up? Mm-hmm. My, my bowels can get a bit loose. So I will mm-hmm. find I have to go to the toilet more often when that happens. Okay. So, all right. So this, this headache's been going on um, for about a month and you got into this argument uh, or disagreement. Mm-hmm. Um, so then tell me about the headache a little bit, you know, what's the, the location of the headache? Mm-hmm. Um, so the headache is on the left-hand side uh, around my temple okay. and it just mm-hmm. feels like it's behind my left eyeball as well, just in that area. Okay. Okay. And what's the exact quality of the, of the, the sensation of the pain that you have? Uh, it feels like somebody is uh, stabbing me with a knife on that side of my head. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. So when you have these, is there anything, tell me, is there anything that makes the headache worse? Things that you, you avoid because you, you know that if you continue to do something or you exposed to any particular thing that it actually makes the headache worse? Um, I'm definitely sensitive to sounds when that happens and I don't like bright lights. And um, if, mm-hmm. I can, if I can lie down in a dark room, it definitely helps. Okay. So I'm just going to break for a second here. This is really good. And one of the things that I, I do as a practitioner that I've learned over the years is when somebody says something makes something worse, I want, I want to get a sense of it. You know, So if they say, I have a headache and it's six. And then when I'm exposed to light, it goes to a 10 or I'm exposed to noise and it goes to a seven. I'm going to take the light modality because mm-hmm. it, has, it has a stronger effect on the person's symptoms. And then the same thing with the modalities that make things better. Mm-hmm. You know, you said, I, I, I definitely have to lay down. So there is a rubric where they're uh, under head pain where they must lie down. Mm-hmm. So if the headache compels that they cannot, when they have a headache, they, they cannot sit up and they cannot walk around. They have to lie down. Then I use the rubric must lie down. Mm-hmm. And then I, you know, I try to find out, okay, if the pain is at, a, <clears throat> at an eight, and you do something that alleviates the pain, let's say an ice pack or you know, lying down, I want to know if it, where does it take the eight? Does it take it down to a two, which mm-hmm. is something I would definitely use. If it takes it from an eight to a six, then I probably won't use it unless I, unless I have nothing else mm-hmm. because we're looking for the strongest modalities. Mm-hmm. If I have a really good cry and I eat cucumber, then I feel much better. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so then we would, we would continue on from there. And I would try to find out, are there any concomitant symptoms? Like when, when you have the headache, um, does anything else happen? So we're looking for mm-hmm. con- uh, concomitants like... Uh, there can be some vomiting with it. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, there's um, some vomiting and yeah, my feet get really hot. I'm literally okay. snaking stuff up as I'm going here. I this is not involved. Oh, okay. <laughs> this is none of my actual symptoms <laughs> at all. But yeah, I'm just trying to think right. of some of the things clients have said to me. But yeah, my feet get really hot and I can have okay. sometimes have a vomit with this headache on the left hand side. Okay. It pushes against okay. my eyeball. <laughs> sure, sure. So so the vomiting, nausea and vomiting is quite common. We can use those to get into the ballpark of the right remedy. But I would say that the hot feet would be much more unique. So this is a good time to talk about when you're case taking, the homeopath is really trying to figure out which symptoms are kind of common and which symptoms are common to the disease. And then which symptoms are unique. The S, what we call the SRPs, what's strange, rare, and peculiar. And so if somebody were to tell me when I get a headache, my feet get really hot, I would try to find that in the repertory because that that's unique. When I hear something I haven't heard in 20 years, then I go to the repertory and, and I go, the remedy has to be in that rubric. And the rubric is a symptom that's been noted over the last 200 years. It's in our repertory and in, it'll be a symptom. And then it's associated with remedies that have cured that symptom in a clinical setting. Mm -hmm. So a rubric can have one remedy in it, or it can have 700. And once you get up to 700 remedies, the rubric becomes almost useless because there's too many remedies. It's not specific enough. Excellent. Well, that was fun. Sorry to put you on the spot there. I just thought it might be interesting oh, for okay. listeners to get a bit of an idea of what sort of uh, information we find helpful. And I'm sure. wondering, Matt, once you've given a what we call a similimum or a constitutional remedy or basically uh, a remedy that most closely matches the client's case, mm -hmm. what sort of things do you hear clients say when they've had that remedy that most sure. closely matches their case? Because people will often ask me, what can I expect? And obviously it right. depends on the case, but what are some things that you often hear people say after they've had a constitutional remedy? Right, right. I get that as well. What, I, what can I expect? What yeah. can I expect? Which can also be, an it can be an indication of the remedy, right? Because mm -hmm, some remedies don't, some remedies, they, they are very uncomfortable with the unknown. So it's very difficult to predict exactly what the reaction can be of the vital force to the remedy. If we're going to assume that we, we gave this similimum, because let's say, regardless of how hard we strive to find the right remedy and how much you want to get the right remedy with every single case, we don't give the right remedy the first time every time. But let's say in the case where we've given the right remedy, you can have the reactions you can get are almost instantaneously, the symptoms can start to ameliorate and get better and resolve. That's one response. Another response is you give the, the right remedy and you get an aggravation. So the symptoms can get mildly worse and then they'll start to get better. You can have a, a reaction where nothing seems to happen. And how long you wait is dependent on whether this is an acute case or this is a chronic case, right? How urgent are these symptoms? You know, if you're dealing with somebody that may need to go to the hospital and, you know, you don't wait very long. So... With the similum, those are, those are the two most common reactions. Either they start to get amelioration right away. Sometimes people say that they get really sleepy. They went to sleep when they woke up, their symptoms were 40% better and 80% better, something like that. Um, aggravations typically should not be as intense as the, the symptoms of the disease itself, mm -hmm. right? So somebody, as, let's stick with headaches because that's what we've been talking about. If somebody typically their head pain goes to an eight, and let's say you're, you're treating them for a chronic headache and you give them a remedy and they have an aggravation, they should feel like a headache might start to come on. So it should go maybe to like a two or a three, but it should not go up to an eight. If it goes up to an eight, that's, not, that's probably not an aggravation. Mm. Um, 
So those are the two typical things. Usually you can have an aggravation beforehand and then you'll get amelioration or you can get amelioration uh, either almost instantaneously or sometimes it takes a half a day or so in an acute case, you know, any uh, 10, 12 hours for things to start uh, getting better. The other thing that's really important that I want to say about this is that once you've taken a dose and you start to get a response of the vital force, whether it's a response leaning towards an aggravation or you're starting to just get amelioration, it's really always best to wait to see how much more improvement you get before you redose. You don't want to, you don't want to do a, a protocol approach where you're giving a remedy every two hours for the next three or four days, especially if it's a, a potency that's higher than a 12C, mm-hmm. right? In my experience... 30C is high enough for most acutes. And so um, that's really, it's, it's something I think it, that we really struggle with as practitioners. It takes us years to finally get it. When you start to see improvement in the vital force, it's like a dropping a, a pebble or a stone into water and watching the, the wave of mm-hmm. the pebble that hit the water the work its way out. Yeah, the ripples. And you're, mm-hmm. you're waiting for the ripples to finish working, them, working their way out. So you don't want to change the remedy too soon. You don't want to take another remedy or take remedies in combination with each other. And you don't want to redose too frequently because redosing too frequently will cause an aggravation and it will cause the resolution that you're looking for. It prolongs it. It makes it, it, makes it take longer. So it's a, that's, that's a really, really important point. And I'm wondering as well, if you're able to share some cases from your clinic with us. Sure, absolutely. I did, uh, it was actually last Friday, I had um, a longstanding patient contact me because her partner is a 75-year-old male uh, for the previous two days. So it was like last Wednesday, Thursday, and they contacted me Friday. Severe, severe left-sided kidney pain. He went into emergent care and um, the patient sent me a message after the fact that they the doctor said for his age and for the size of his kidney stone, which they had diagnosed him with, that he wasn't going to be able to pass the stone and he's going to, he's going to need surgery. Mm-hmm. So they, they contacted me on Friday. I took this case. He was somebody that just doesn't give symptoms. He was, he had already taken a Percocet. So he's kind of out of it a little bit. So I did the best I could and I got location. It was in the left uh, ureter. There weren't a whole lot of symptoms. I used mostly just the fact that I knew that uh, lycopodium is a main remedy for kidney stones. Mm -hmm. It's typically right-sided. This happened to be left-sided, but lycopodium was a grade two under left-sided kidney stones and problems or complaints with the left ureter. There were one or two other things that I saw in his case. So I told them to take, and and, and to be honest, I, I didn't have enough information to make a strong case for lycopodium. Mm -hmm. The other remedy I was looking at was belladonna because Kent says, and I've used this two or three times in the past, Kent says low-dose belladonna, so a 3C or a 2C or a 6C, if it's given, it can uh, relax circular smooth muscle, right? And we see that in the eyes, right? If If you take belladonna, or in belladonna poisonings, or we're looking to get one of, one of the indications for belladonna are dilated pupils. Yeah. So that's circular, circular smooth muscle. So when we look at tubes in the body, you know, we look at the ureters, we look at the, the gall duct. Um, 
you look at the urethra, uh, you can look at peristalsis, there's circular smooth muscle there. So Kent says that if you, if you don't have any symptoms, you can give belladonna on a very low potency and it will help those, that circular smooth, smooth muscle stop spasming. So it'll help to pass gallstones and kidney stones. So um, we went with lycopodium first and he was getting much better and they gave him a, 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 a dose that was inappropriate to give because again, we're um, our time zones were 11 hours apart. So I think while I was sleeping, they gave another dose mm-hmm. and he started to get worse mm-hmm. and he had to take another Percocet, but he had improved so much. So I had told them to take um, a dose or two of the Belladonna because they had it in a 6C and they did that. And then um, we went back to the Lycopodium. So let's see, I started on Friday. By Sunday, he was up doing chores, no pain. Um, and uh, essentially, he averted the, the, the surgery. Amazing. And um, yeah, no, yeah, it was, it was, it, it's those pathological cases are, they're, they're very satisfying because people aren't supposed to respond this way in the allopathic um, world, right? You know, that was supposed to be a surgical case. Mm-hmm. You know, gallstones are supposed to be surgical cases. Hernias are supposed to be surgical cases. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, this past spring, I had a patient who had had a umbilical hernia since her three-year-old son was born. And I gave her an indicated remedy. And within a week, her umbilical hernia went away. Wow. And I, I know. I know. I was completely amazed. So homeopathy has the power to do really amazing things. But like I said earlier, there has to be a level of surrender and just a level of being open to the infinite. Like, you know, anything is possible, especially with homeopathy. Anything is possible. It's a really, really uh, miraculous medicine. Those are just uh, one, one case that came to mind um, as, as you asked. Our bodies have such an incredible capacity to heal itself. Our bodies want mm-hmm. to heal itself. And if we can stay away from suppressing symptoms and instead give it something like homeopathy, which can really stimulate our vital force to heal itself. It is the most beautiful, mm-hmm. beautiful thing to see. I just had a, a case of impetigo this week and the mum sent me a photo of the little girl with sores mm-hmm. all over her face, legs, arms. Mm-hmm. And she said, my husband is really pressuring me to use antibiotics right now. And I said to her, it's your child. It's your choice. If you want to do the antibiotics, that's fine, but we can try some homeopathics in the meantime. And we gave mm-hmm. some uh, ant crude and we gave her the staph strip nozode and I think some calendula and we use hypercal mother tincture topically and three days Mm -hmm. later she sent me more photos and you know a picture paints a thousand a thousand words and pictures don't lie Mm -hmm. and you can see the photo Mm -hmm. from the one day to three days later and it's starting to scab over the redness is gone it's looking so much better and you could just hear in her voice how much calmer she is and she was like wow my husband is now a believer as well we can't believe it and you know just look at these Mm -hmm. photos it's just a simple case, you know, it's just impetigo, school source, you know, nothing major, but right. our bodies are just so incredible to heal itself. Yeah, that's what Hahnemann said. It's like the, mm-hmm. the vital force is looking for help through signs and symptoms. Mm-hmm. So you don't have to put yourself in the mindset that you're being attacked by something. You know, if somebody's if somebody is in that mindset, then they might need an animal remedy. You know, like that could be an indication that I'm being attacked or I'm being invaded or this or that. But the reality is the symptoms are just signposts to get somebody that's versed in homeopathy to the right remedy. And then you give the remedy and the vital force responds and then the disease goes away, mm. you know, in most, in most cases. 
and it doesn't matter whether it's a you know a couple months ago i was contacted by somebody young man in his 20s and he had been up he had had a psychotic break about 10 years before and he was up all night with lights on and thinking that there were spirits trying to come in and take his soul and um you know i took his case very carefully and i put him on a 6c once a day and he was back to his normal self he almost immediately started getting back to his normal self but his you know his parents were still so worried because they what they had been through 10 years before that they they did take him to the hospital just out of an abundance of caution but he really didn't need it mm-hmm. and um and and he made a complete recovery with uh, stramonium mm-hmm. you know Oh, I love stramonium. I have honestly lost count mm-hmm. of how many children I've helped with this remedy with night terrors. Mm-hmm. It's such a mm-hmm. great remedy. Hey, and when your child has something like night terrors, I mean, what do you do? Do you take him to a psychologist? Do you put him on drugs? Like, what do you do? Right. All these kiddies who see monsters and spirits and things in their room who are unable to sleep, who are just so affected by these mm-hmm. energies, you give them stramonium. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, it's it's like it magically changes their energy and suddenly these things mm-hmm. that affected them previously are not affecting them anymore. It's just beautiful. Yeah. You know, another remedy that you should really consider when you're looking at, at stramonium, like if you're thinking or that the symptoms are taking you to stramonium for night mm-hmm. terrors is calibromatum. Mm-hmm. Calibromatum is, a, is it, I, I have done studies on these remedies and I've obviously used them over the years. And I had a, a, a woman, she, I was seeing her for something else. I've seen both her and her husband. And for the first six months, I was treating for these things. And then six months in, they go, she says, well, for the last 30 years, I've had these horrible nightmares and they wake me up and the husband, yeah, every night she wakes up screaming. Mm. And they didn't tell me this for the first six months of, of, of treatment. And um, so I ended up, you know, taking her case and she was like, it's just like, it's like the end of the universe. I wake up and I'm just so... I just, I, I can't see so foreboding and, and the, I ended up giving Calibramatum and mm. her night terrors that she'd had for 20 years went away. Amazing. Is Cal- so, Calibramatum has the delusion she saw her brother fall overboard in her sight? Is that the one? That's the one that has that. Yeah. The main thing for Calibramatum, it's a delusion that they've been um, selected for divine vengeance. Mm-hmm. And essentially that God is after them. Mm-hmm. That delusion that you mentioned about seeing their their brother fall overboard it's a feeling of guilt i wasn't mm-hmm. able to help them you know that's the, kind of the underlying feeling for that so guilt is a big a big aspect of the, the kali brahmana but acutely you know you can that's the amazing thing about homeopathy that like you can learn about the personality type but then you can also go into the old repertory and the rubrics and the materia medica and you can see why, why else it was given if you don't have a sense of the personality type or you know the the remedy that fits the personality you've given those remedies and you're not getting the results you want you can go in and look at the patient's case from a different angle mm-hmm. as well so. yeah that's a beautiful one um amy lansky mentioned calibramatum in her book impossible cure because her her, mm-hmm. her youngest son had autism and he was cured with homeopathy but the oldest son ended up developing some symptoms i can't remember exactly what it was but they mm-hmm. ended up giving him calibramatum because you know the delusion of seeing the brother or the this whoever falling overboard in their sight and there was that guilt and that feeling of mm-hmm. you know, having to look after his brother and not being able to look after his brother and guilt around that and mm, he's responded right. really well to that remedy nice nice yeah. very good very yeah. good 
It, it kind of ties into my last question that I always ask my guests, and that is, what sure. are your what are your top three remedies that you could not live without, and why? Oh, top three remedies. Um, I would say number one is nature muriaticum. I uh, that remedies helped me quite a bit over the years, and I I kind of feel like people that need it end up finding me some way. I mean, I think I give more nature muriaticum with really good success uh, than any other remedy. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say that one, like a podium, has come up quite a bit over the years, and uh, sepia mm-hmm. as well. Yeah, and I think I, I, I'm selecting those three just on how valuable they've been over the years, like what I've seen them do. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but it's always important to obviously. I'm always open to the small remedies. You know, like when do I give lemna minor? When do I give, you know, all these other little remedies? Because we've got, you know, depending on who you ask, twelve hundred to. 8,000. 8,000, 8,000 remedies. Um, But the the newer remedies, I tend to wait on a bit to see Mm. how they're going to play out. I like to wait to kind of see because you don't want to get into this realm of speculation. And it's very easy to get into theory and speculation and homeopathy. And so it's good to stay anchored in symptoms and materia medica that are tried and true. So if you stick with the case taking the Materia Medica that has been used for 200 years, it's been, you know, I mean, the level of homeopathy that we had 120 to 150 years ago, I think was far superior as far as clinical training, Mm -hmm. because, you know, in, in 1900, when you wanted to practice homeopathy or wanted to learn about it, your teachers, you'd go to a, a medical school. And you'd be there, you would learn anatomy, you'd learn physiology. It was like a medical training, but you learned homeopathy. And then all of your teachers had 20, 30, 40 years of experience, most of them. And they treated things like, you know, plague and tuberculosis and, you know, like John Clark's war remedy, where he talks about gunpowder as a homeopathic remedy. So you had these clinicians that had decades of experience treating extremely severe pathology. And those were your teachers. They, you know, and that that lineage was broken. I don't want to, you know, they, I don't want to get too much into the history of it. But mm-hmm. that lineage was broken. So, you know, the homeopaths we have now, they're they're we're good, but we didn't have the same level of experience. And the teachers that taught us didn't have the same level of experience that they did 120 years ago. That's mm-hmm. my only point about that. So, but everything happens for a reason. Mm-hmm. And there's a reason that um, we are where we are with regard to homeopathy today, and, and it's going to go on. Homeopathy is not going anywhere because the Hahnemann didn't create the principles that govern homeopathy. He elucidated them. So he brought them to light. They're always there. They're like the laws of chemistry and the laws of physics. They're not going anywhere. And as long as there's a universe, there's going to be homeopathy. I love that. That is absolutely beautiful. What a great way for us to finish off. (laughs) As long as there's a universe, there's homeopathy. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) I'm going to get that printed on a t-shirt and I'll have to post you a copy. (laughs) Please do. Please do. I appreciate that. (laughs) <laughs> have, have you trademarked that yet? You should. <laughs> I have. That just came to me. Spontaneous. <laughs> um, you know, it's interesting as well because the homeopaths in those days didn't have the uh, monster of a pharmaceutical in- industry to deal with that we do these days. So they were allowed oh. to treat all sorts of things, which these days, you know, for various mm-hmm. reasons, we're not allowed to yeah. supposedly treat uh, or help with. So. Yeah, it's and they made headlines, and they made and they made headlines. You know, mm. I mean, they were they were written up in in like in the in the papers in the new in New York went through mm. uh, the different um, you know plagues and epidemics that went mm. through the the poor 
sections of the city. I, I don't know if you know the logic of numbers and statistics. I think it is by Bradshaw. I'll have to get the the, the, the book to you later. But they compare at the time allopathic versus homeopathic treatment. And homeopathic treatment, whether it was in a um, a prison or a hospital or you know, it didn't matter where it was or what they were treating, homeopathy outperformed every single time. Mm-hmm. And even even now, I don't know if you do you know who the Pulfords are. They were a, a father and a son, and they were in the U.S. And there was a historian that compiled all of their cases, and they had over three thousand cases of pneumonia that they treated between the two of them and their practice. And they they think their practice spanned over. 60, 80 years, something like that. So the the, the historian compiled uh, the mortality rate for all of these over 3,000 cases of pneumonia that they had treated. The mortality rate turned out to be 0.17%. Wow. And even today, cool. even to, yeah. And even today with antibiotics, the mortality rate's about 5%. And it, that most of that's in elderly people, you know, as soon as you get over 65 and you have comorbidities. Uh, but still, people succumb to bacterial pneumonia and viral pneumonia all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, but the you know homeopathy is absolutely amazing mm-hmm. with regard to treating uh, these diseases. Mm-hmm. So it's a blessing for us. Yeah, um, I can tell that we're going to need a part two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight of this podcast. Sure. So please rebook <laughs> for the next one because there's so much more to chat about. This is just like skimming the surface. But I'm wondering Absolutely. before we finish off, Matt, are you able to tell our listeners yeah. where they can get hold of you? And I'll pop it in the show notes, but just so you can tell tell people who may be driving sure. and can't, can't look at the show notes right now, where can they get hold of you? Yeah, so if people want to get in touch with me, they can go to my website, which is www vital force medicine it's all lowercase so vital medicine.com that's one way um they can email me mm-hmm. uh, my email is are my initials m as in matthew z as in zebra and as in nancy d as in doctor 72 at gmail.com um or they can find me on facebook as well on there matt zorn facebook vital force medicine on facebook as well so those are some places they can find me Excellent. And you do consultations online for anyone in the world? Pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of part of our move into the fourth uh, industrial revolution. (laughs) The the world wide web is becoming the place to do uh, work. But on the one hand, I couldn't be where I am right now in the world and, and help as many people as I can help. So on that end, it's a positive. Mm-hmm, I agree. Thank you so yeah. much for your time, Matthew. I can't wait for the next installment. I'll chat with you soon. All right. Thank you so much. I really appreciate the invite and the ability to be able to talk with you and reach your listeners. And I'm grateful. So thank you. Thank you.